Hey, murder lovers. My name is Mackenzie. This is Patina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. I feel like for some reason you're always laughing at the beginning of the intro. <laughs> I don't know if it's a nervous laugh or if it's just... Oh, yeah. I totally nervous laugh. All the time. We don't have our skulls in here and stuff. Our I mean, skulls? Like, yeah, we have a, have a bag of skulls over here. Oh, yeah. And a hatchet a, and... It's your murder bag. <laughs> Yep, it's a duffel full of <laughs> killing stuff. So, quick Oh, story. that's why your decor is missing. Got it. Right. Okay. So, right. you guys already saw by now, Kenzie put out a picture of us that we went to a cemetery and took some pictures. We walked around. You guys saw the t-shirts, which is really exciting. And But to prepare for that, I grabbed a duffel bag and I grabbed all the decorations and stuff that we had in the podcast room, which includes skulls many skulls and i grabbed a hatchet a shovel <laughs> a hammer got really dark i didn't know quickly. how we were gonna do this and then i told her that she couldn't bring those things into a cemetery at dusk and not have the cops called on us or get pulled over with a bag full of skulls oh my gosh can you imagine <laughs> sorry mr officer I'd give him a moment to try to take it all in first. Be like, uh, back up. You wouldn't give him a moment. You'd be like, where's your warrant? Yeah, no shit. I'd be like, we uh, know no, this. you have no consent to go in my trunk. No, sir. You said that there are, is there something coming out on Netflix that I need to watch? Oh. That you said there was something. There's a couple things. There's that Brittany Murphy thing. Oh, are they doing something like yeah. that? Yeah. Pretty that sure. is a very weird story to me. Yes, it is. That mom is real freaking creepy. There's that coming out, and I feel like there's something else coming out on Netflix that was true crime related. 2020 is going to do Elisa Lamb. Oh, that's right. It was Elisa Lamb. Mm -hmm. They're doing a whole thing on the Cecil Hotel on that. So, yeah. That would, I mean, I'm down to watch it. I'm going to watch it. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people that stayed there. Richard Ramirez stayed there. Yes, he did. So maybe we should do a series of everyone that stayed at the Cecil Hotel. We have lots of series ideas right now. I know. Let's get through Scott right. Peterson, which it's I'm true. super nervous about. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, we've stirred up many emotions about the Scott Peterson case, including from Fatina's own mother-in-law, who's threatened to disown me over it. So, <laughs> Kim, I'm sorry. Please let me still come on all the vacations. <laughs> Uh, I went over one day and the episode had just been released that we talked about doing it. And then we were doing something and she goes, no, I don't want to talk about Kenzie because she doesn't agree with me on the Scott Peterson case. And I was like, wait, what? You guys should know. Hard feelings. That the family dynamic here <laughs> is that Kim, despite my relation to the family being very much like Fatina and Kara and Kara is my best friend and Fatina and you know I've met Fatina through Kara and everything like that that when I go to talk about Kim I stop myself from calling her my mother-in-law <laughs> because I'm so much like I'm at the birthdays I'm at the holidays you yep. know like all the different barbecues and everything like that so when Kim has threatened now that I'm not allowed to come on the trips until I change my mind I take that seriously <laughs> and I'm hurt 
Well, I and all I want to say is, Kim, all I've said is that I'm open to exploring possibilities about the fact that they didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, what's funny is that, A, I didn't know that she had a stance on it. Or that she um, felt so strongly about right. it. <laughs> but, so that encouraged me even more so to start, you know, digging into... I've watched so many documentary guys. I've done, I think I've done like 10 pages of notes, at least on the factual stuff that we know. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to go back and dive into the theories. And I think I told Mackenzie this almost um, like a neener neener moment. Like, I'm going to be the prosecution. Yeah. Yeah, that's what she told me. <laughs> Which is fine, because the prosecution is the one that carries the burden. Job. They yeah. carry the burden of proving somebody's That's true. I'm guilt. not saying I'm going to be successful, but I think I'll bring up different, better points, more developed points than the actual prosecution did. Right. Or at least talk about why or how they didn't go into other theories. Mm -hmm. So. Not saying that I'll be successful, but it'll be interesting to see where we go with that. So I think after we finish up this Robert Durst, that'll be our next our next challenge to our tackle. Our next challenge, absolutely. But it'll be fun. Well, it'd be fun for you because you're very much of the mindset <laughs> that's popular. Uh, I need like a Sheldon travel gavel, <laughs> like a little call order to the court. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Actually, um, what you should do is you should find a recording of that and you can insert ooh. it into the beginning of the episode. And then the last thing that's it, this, you guys, it might develop into a true crime topic. So if you have any knowledge of pop culture, Britney Spears has been weird as of like Wait, what? a couple years now. Um, um, Britney Spears has been weird since okay. the 2007 incident where she shaved her head, all right? It's a couple years. Yeah. <laughs> 13 years. One could say. There's a special coming out that will dive into her more recent life and the details of conservatorship that her dad has over her mm -hmm. and how possibly that has affected her life. Yes. So... I'm very passionate about Britney. I'm very passionate about somebody getting help for Britney. Yes. <laughs> Some she, things not right there. Uh, th no. Couple things are not right, right there. So if you haven't followed or seen the Britney videos, just go to her Instagram. Yeah, just, just if you haven't recently, just slide on over to Britney's Instagram and just peruse just if you will look. and then come back and let's discuss and, and you know there's all these theories you know is she being held against her will or is she being i don't think she's being held against her will well i think she's just absolutely lost her freaking mind uh, and yeah. nobody's helping her that's true too okay so we are starting off part two of robert durst we left off with robert's First hot mic. So if you remember in part four, he was hot mic to saying, talking himself through the question of like whether or not he lied on the stand. And he was talking about, um, this was in the Galveston murder trial of his neighbor, Morris Black. And Andrew Jarecki, who was the producer of the film, was asking him if he lied. And he was like, I told the truth 
and nothing but the truth, but I may not have told the whole truth, essentially, is what he's saying. And so then they hot mic him and he's whispering to himself, I did not knowingly purposefully lie. And then says, I knowingly purposefully intentionally lie. And his lawyer comes over to tell him that he's still mic'd everything, blah, 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 shut up. Yes. And that's where it ends. So... As we left off, he was acquitted of murder in Galveston, Texas, for the murder and dismemberment of his neighbor, Morris Black. Correct. Right. So, as we move into part five, Robert Durst's family has basically completely separated themselves from the insanity that is Bob. He's just, he's a lot. The family's still doing really well themselves they're getting all their big contracts like their real estate contracts they got picked to build the freedom tower and everything like that so they're doing fine like the family business is good but robert durst is over here kind of like a bug if you will that they just can't swat away the family won't do interviews with police they won't even discuss the disappearance of kathy amongst themselves when andrew jurecki asks bob if he thinks that his own dad seymour durst would have thought that Bob was guilty of Kathy's disappearance. Bob says that he highly doubts it, which I was like, <laughs> hmm. damn, if my mom, oh, mom didn't believe me. I'd be You're hurt. Yep. I'd be hurt. But says that he highly doubts that Seymour thought that he had something to do with it. And basically Seymour left Bob to just deal with it because Seymour was still alive when Kathy disappeared. Uh, okay. Some people are still not giving up on linking Bob to the disappearance of Kathy. Um, Janine Pirro is kind of at the front of that. She was the attorney in the last one where she yep. like kind of had like this vendetta or whatever. And the defense used that to blame Janine Pirro for this ever even being an issue with Morris right. Black. That basically Morris Black wouldn't have died if Janine Pirro would have just let things go as a prosecutor and not looked more into Kathy Durst's death. So I was like, that's not really their job. They're not supposed to just let things go. Right. <laughs> not only that, but... I mean, there might be some truth to that, right? but I don't think she should be held responsible in any way. She's doing her job. So Janine Pirro makes it more of a point now because of him getting off from the Galveston murder trial that he, he she's like, I'm not going to let up, up on this on Kathy this. thing. Absolutely not. So Bob maintains his legal representation regarding the disappearance of Kathy Durst and his lawyers actually hire a private investigator. So the private investigator finds that the doorman gave two different accounts of what happened the evening that Kathy disappeared. He first tells police that Kathy came in, came into the building that night and the doorman took her up to their room or their apartment or whatever. Right. To her penthouse or yes, whatever. Yes. Th- he saw her. He took her up to their place or Which whatever. Which is odd for a doorman to do, to take you up to her door. No. That it's wouldn't not? be odd. No. Really? Nope. Not in New York. If it's a secured building and things like that, that wouldn't be odd. Oh. Shit. That's in first class service. I, I thought know, that was odd. Me. I was like, the doorman's following you all the way or you know, escorting you all the way. I nope. That was they weird. would like run the elevators and everything. Uh, so that's not gotcha, odd. Gotcha. Gotcha. Part of that is my understanding is that some have like the security feature where it's basically only the doorman can take you up because the elevator or something. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And operates that so that way you don't have random people just going up the mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Something about the pinky up life I did not know. Exactly. <laughs> Too fancy for that. Yep. But I then my own elevator buttons. Thank that's you very right. much. <laughs> the doorman later tells the private investigator that he never saw her that night. 
And he also, this private investigator, finds that Bob has given four different accounts on the record of when and where he called Kathy the Sunday night that she disappeared. We know from last episode that Bob later admits to the fact that he didn't call her at all, that right. he made that up to throw the police off looking into him any further right. and just making it a strictly New York investigation. But prior to him admitting that to Andrew Jarecki, he told police four different stories about where he was and what he was doing when he called Kathy. So what we know is that Bob is basically a terrible liar who can't track his own he stories. Awful. He's like truly the worst. Yeah. And this is going to come back and bite him. But I think part of the reason that he's in the position he's in right now is because he just lies and he doesn't think about the lies that he's already told. So yeah, his story is just never straight. So the private investigator, he says that he is mutually terminated as a result of his findings. And what's implied is that this is basically because he's poked too many holes in Bob's story for them to be able to successfully argue Bob's innocence. Mm. And also the more that the private investigator knows and finds out, the more can be used against Bob. So they just right. decide to like... Let's stop digging. Yes. Yeah. Cut ties and call this good. And this is all, just so you guys know, this is a conversation that Jarecki is having with the private investigator, right? Or someone is having... Yeah, so Andrew Jarecki right. calls the investigator. They, they're they able to obtain copies and reports of just about everything. Right. And they do obtain a copy of his findings. And the findings are a report of the inconsistencies in Bob's stories. Right. Um, he does call the... A private investigator. And the private investigator basically says anything that Bob said to me is privileged information right. because it was done in the front of, in the presence of his attorney and I was working for the attorney and blah, blah, yep. blah. But Jarecki says like, based on your results and your findings, I can understand why you would be mutually terminated because you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be a great asset uh, to their team, to the defense right. as far as like you being able to get up on the stand and say, here's all the reasons I have to believe that he's innocent. Right. Because we haven't if, found any. If your attorney knows you did it, isn't that a defeat the purpose and they can't defend you? They like, that's can, why you can defend you. you, but you are legally obligated to report any right. omission of guilt. Because like, if you, you can't tell your attorney, if you're in for murder, you can't tell your attorney like, I murdered that I person. I murdered that person. And then your attorney's like, no, you didn't. Right. We're, and I'm not going to say that you did. So. They then have to figure out why you murdered that person. Exactly. Yeah. So there's that. I thought that was always interesting. Yeah. Like if, you're, if you have an attorney and you're being tried for murder and you're trying to say you didn't do it, but you did, don't tell your attorney you did. They don't want to know that. Which they'll tell you that first and foremost. Right. I don't don't tell you. me. Yep. Tell me what possibilities there are. Yeah. So in the meantime, Andrew Jarecki has been desperately trying to get an interview with Douglas Durst, who's the younger brother and also the head of the Durst organization. Mm -hmm. Now, Douglas Durst refuses to take their calls. At one point, Andrew Jarecki calls his office and then a spokesperson calls him back. And he was like, I'm returning the call on behalf of Douglas Durst. And Jarecki goes, okay. Right. And he goes, you called him. And Jarecki goes, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> I called him, so... Can I speak to him? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really funny. But basically, uh, the spokesperson says that Douglas has no interest in doing an interview with them or anything like that. Come mm -hmm. to find out, I find out later on, which this is not discussed in the film, that all the deposition tapes were technically... Drecky basically wasn't supposed to have those. Yeah, I was wondering how he got all that. Bob. 
Bob had copies of everything and gave him access to everything. And so actually after filming got done, Douglas filed suit against Andrew Jarecki for using those tapes. Gotcha. But he, they settled because basically they were made available to him. They were made available to him because Bob Durst gave him all access to all of his stuff, including those tapes, handed them over to Andrew Drecke. Even though technically those were confidential tapes, they should not have ever made it onto the film, but Bob gave them access to it. So that's how he got all of that stuff. That's interesting. Super interesting. Andrew Jarecki goes to a dinner being held in Douglas's honor and confronts him about the film and tells him that he'd like to interview him. And then when Andrew walks off, Douglas like promptly notifies someone and the two go looking for the him. That was a very interesting exchange. Yeah. I mean, he was to the point. It was elevator pitch. Yep. I'm doing a film. I'm doing a film. I'd really like to interview you for it. And can we make arrangements or whatever? And then Douglas promptly walks off, whispers something to a guy. The two of them get up. They walk out looking for him, not having any idea that somebody's sitting there with a, probably a camera phone filming the whole thing. It's really interesting. And it cuts to Drecky walking down the street. His, he's made an exit, like Mm -hmm. promptly exited that dinner. Yep. And he's talking about how interesting it is that the family is basically acting like Bob doesn't exist. I know you guys are like, how is this relevant? Like, get to the point and everything like that. Well, Jarecki then takes Bob to film at the different locations of the Durst organization. (laughs) (laughs) So they go to all of these family-owned buildings. And without fail, every single time, security comes out to stop them from filming and make sure that they don't enter the property. What's interesting is that they kind of detour. They're walking down the street and Bob is mumbling to himself, as he often does, about how ridiculous the whole thing is or whatever. And then he's like, I want you guys to film me or take a photo of me in front of Douglas's house because I know that that's Douglas's house. And it's like, oh, shit. (laughs) And, And they can't stop him. I mean, it's the side of the street and they let him just go up in front of the house. There's footage of him doing that. Be clear, Andrew Jarecki and his team do not go up to Douglas's house. They They let Bob walk across the street. They stay on the other side of the street, and they're talking to themselves about how weird this is. They're like, this is really weird. I feel like he's going to go over there, and he's not going to leave until somebody comes out and tells him to leave. And Bob just kind of meanders in front of the house or whatever, and then eventually walks back across the street, and that's that. It's a very weird moment that is going to come into play again. So... There's deep-seated issues in the relationship between Douglas and Bob. A lot of it has to do with Douglas being picked over Bob to run the family business. Mm -hmm. So in a recorded call with his second wife, Deborah, which we know Deborah. Deborah, yep. (laughs) She's, She's a lot. Yes. Bob said that he had gone to Douglas's house, and this is a jail house recording. Yes. Deborah was like, yeah, I think I read something about that in the paper. And Bob said, yeah, I really went. I planned it, but I'm, I'm definitely not going to say, say it. She's like, don't say it. Don't yeah. say it. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to say it. And then they flash a newspaper article and the headline reads, bitter Robert planned to knock off his brother. And Deborah is heard saying, you told me what your plans were. And I knew like I had a feeling and I suspected. And if I suspected, he knew it too. So what we find out is this jailhouse recording was taken after Bob was taken into custody for going on the run. And while Bob was out on the run, there is basically 
proof that he had pulled into the driveway of his brother's house while he's out on the run for murdering Morris Black and posting bail and taking off. He pulls into the driveway of his brother's house and he has two guns in his car when he pulls into the driveway of his brother's house. Yep. At that point, after this happens, Douglas hires a bodyguard to protect himself and his family from his brother. Right. So what one can interpret from the jailhouse conversation is that Bob had gone to his brother's house while he was on the run after posting bond in Galveston, Texas, with the intention of killing his brother. 100%. Yep. Allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) We have a history with that word here. (laughs) Yes. So Deborah is kind of an interesting relationship. In part one of, you know, the podcast, we had said that they didn't really seem to be married for love. And that's 100% true. Deborah later mm-hmm. says that they're married for convenience. In fact, there is evidence that she is living with and dating one of his real estate agents or oh, whatever. really? Yeah. So we find out that the day after Bob found out they were reopening the case into Kathy's disappearance, Bob bought an engagement ring for Deborah. That's right. Yeah. For like 70 70- freaking grand 77 grand yeah oh my god which i was like that's not a that's not a convenience engagement ring but okay yeah so essentially what he's doing is he's sealing the spousal privilege between the two of them like she's obviously some type of confidant for him she knows some things so once he finds out that they're looking back into kathy's disappearance he's like damn gotta gotta seal that up gotta wrap that one in so (laughs) that way she can't talk and at the same time And what I think happened is he also, what we know happened is that he signed over power of attorney to her, which Mm -hmm. include control of his finances. And my guess is that he said, basically, I'll give you power of attorney and you have access over this money, but you marry me. And then that way you can't talk about what you know. And that's the trade-off. That's an assumption, but it sounds correct. Which is why she's so worried about them taking the approach of him being crazy. Yeah. And having their marriage nullified as a result of it. Because then she loses the power of attorney and the access to all the money. Absolutely. So when Deborah's asked in interviews about what Bob had told her about the investigation prior to their marriage, which was specific, like Mm -hmm. you could only ask about the conversations that happened prior to the marriage. She said that Bob had told her that he was scared that Janine Pirro was reopening the investigation, that he was concerned. Yes. Janine Pirro also noted that Deborah couldn't remember where Bob was around Christmas the year that Susan Berman was murdered, despite the fact that they were newlyweds. They'd literally been married a couple weeks at this point. And she had no idea where Bob was at Christmas time when Susan Berman died. They were not living together at this time, Deborah and Bob, but investigators did say that they could place Bob in California during the time that Susan died. And Susan had told a few people that he was coming to visit for the holidays. Right. Despite being able to place Bob in California, they were still struggling to place him in L.A. When Jarecki asked Bob about this, he said that he had been there a long time before Christmas. hmm Which wasn't true. And then they begin to unravel that story. So here's what happens. And this part gets a little confusing in the film because they don't explain a lot of background information. What you should know is that Bob has a house in Trinidad, California. Okay. 
His car, he leaves parked at long-term parking at the airport. Don't know why. They don't explain that in the film. We just know that he has a car in long-term parking at the airport. But basically he leaves it there when he's not there. And my guess is that he leaves it there. So when he flies in, he doesn't have to have somebody come pick him up or, or something. Or a rental car or whatever. He just jumps yeah. in his own car and takes it. So what we know is that a cab driver shows a receipt that Bob had taken a ride with him on December 19th to the airport. He goes to the airport parking lot to pick up his car. The airport parking lot log shows that Bob had left his car parked in long-term parking at the Arcata Airport, and he checks it out of parking on December 19th. Okay. Not a long time before Christmas, no. just in case anyone was wondering. Same week of. Yep. Bob then uses a calling card to make calls from a payphone in Garberville, which is south of the airport that he left on December 19th. So this would be headed in the direction of Beverly Hills. They were driving south. So okay. Garberville is about 80 miles south of where he started. I was just going to look that up. I yep. wanted to check. Thank you. I got you. <laughs> What's also important to note is that the mileage on Bob's car yeah. is consistent with a round trip from Trinidad to Beverly Hills and back. And we know the mileage on the car because he'd had it serviced. Oh. <laughs> and they marked the mileage of when it was serviced. <laughs> Sorry. And then he doesn't come back to California again until seven months later when he sells his car. This isn't in the documentary. No, I find this out other ways. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> he sells his car seven months later and the dealership clocks in his mileage. And the mileage from the time it was serviced to when he sells it seven months later is consistent with a round trip, wow. a round trip from Trinidad to Beverly, to Beverly Hills. Hills and back. Despite the fact that Bob says that he he doesn't drive that car a lot because he doesn't live there. Right. Like he only he has a house there, but he's not there very much and he wasn't there very much during that time. There would have been no other way for him to really put that mileage on his car unless he'd been taking that trip. During this time of him taking this trip, there's no activity on his cell phone. His cell phone is turned off. Now he's a frequent cell phone user. Like I said, he checks his voicemail multiple times a day. I said that in the last episode that he's mm -hmm. constantly checking his voicemails, Mr. Popular. But his phone is turned off and there's no activity on his cell phone during this time. Then on December 23rd, he purchased a ticket from San Francisco airport to JFK leaving at 10 PM at night. They also note that, and they don't know this in the film, I don't think. They It's noted in other places that I've used for research. He doesn't fly red eyes. And so hmm. for him to take a 10 p.m. flight very is odd. very odd. Now, Susan's body was found the following afternoon on Christmas Eve. And at that time, it was determined that she had been dead 24 hours from when she was found. So she did die on December 23rd, which Correct. is the day that Bob bought the plane ticket that night. And left back to JFK yep. Airport in New York. Now, remember in the last episode, I talked about Susan's stepson, Sarab. And he had made friends with Bob and really didn't think that Bob did it. He's really invested in Susan. Like, he loves Susan. Susan's basically like his mother or whatever. And he thinks that Bob is just a good friend and that things are a coincidence and blah, blah, blah. I think Bob was invested in a business of his. Bob had paid for his school College, or whatever. And yeah. he was like, there's just no way he could have done it. Like, he's... Team Bob. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but Sarab, because of, like, their close relationship and the fact that Susan didn't have her own kids or anything like that, when she died, majority of her possessions went to her stepkids. Right. So that would be Sarab and then his sister. Mm -hmm. 
And Sharab has a box of her things. And so when this thing begins filming and Jarecki comes to him about doing an interview and everything like that, Sarab goes back through some of those things that he has gotten from Susan to see if anything stirs up memories or anything like sure. that so that he could contribute to the interviews. And Sarab calls producers because he finds a letter in Susan's possession that absolutely rocks him. And he's just like completely shaken by this letter. Yeah. And so he shows him a letter that's written to Susan from Bob. And we know that because it's still in the envelope with Bob's letterhead on it. Yep. And one of his office buildings in New York. And then it's written to Susan, her address line on the envelope itself. The letter inside the envelope says, been thinking a lot about old mm -hmm. times and old memories. Good luck, Susie. Love, Bob, or something like right. that. The theory is, is that he had sent money with this letter because he yes. very often sent money to her. What's interesting, though, is that the envelope, the way it's addressed, matches letter for letter the cadaver note that was sent from Susan's house to police that had her address on it in the word cadaver. So remember in the last episode of this, we talked about how Somebody had post-dated something to the Beverly Hills police on the day that Susan died, December 23rd. It's postmarked December 23rd, and it says 1527 Canyon Drive, Cadaver. And the envelope itself is addressed to Beverly Hills PD. Right. Okay, and so the envelope that the letter comes in has Beverly Hills PD on there. Now, the note written, the address on there looks exactly the same as the address... Um, on the cadaver note. Yep. Like, I mean, the letters are exactly the same. And what's noteworthy is that Beverly is spelled wrong in both instances. It's spelled with an extra E. It's L-E-Y. Yes. And I mean, when they I, are identical. This would be like a five-year-old could tell you they look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Someone that has impaired sight could tell you they look exactly the same. So what's interesting to me is that I, so if you read any piece of writing that I write, I have like three different handwritings in one. Oh, I have so many. Yeah. yeah. That's not the case with Bob. No. So his ends end like Nancy. They all have the same characteristics. So it looks like a printed It, it literally looks like a photocopy. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's so weird to see that and... That's what she's talking about when the stepson brought that out and showed it to Derecki. Derecki had like an oh shit moment yep. because he didn't even have the cadaver note near him to realize right. these look exactly the same. He had gotten a copy of the ca cadaver note prior to this, so he did get a copy of it from detectives, so he knew exactly what it looked like. Right, but I mean like when, when he was handed the oh, envelope yeah. from the son... He already knew. Yeah, he knew right away right. what the similarity was without even needing to compare the them side Beverly by side. The Beverly misspelling, the type, it was, it was a moment. So, Saraba ultimately, like, gives this letter to the producers and is like, you have my blessing to do with this what you will type thing, which yeah. I kind of disagree with in part because I'm kind of like, uh, should have given that to investigators or whatever. Yeah. But then at the same time, what Jarecki does with this is part of the reason that we have a trial today. So, I'm like... Good job, Andrew. The, the way that they handle that was... You'll go into details. It's, it's beautiful. They yes, do all the work for the investigators. So yeah. they do ask Sarab 
based on the new information, because, you know, he's Team Bob, if he feels like he has some answers now in the death of Susan. Because up to this point, nobody's been arrested in the right. death of Susan. And so Rob is basically, like, completely shaken and devastated. And he, in so many words, is like, yeah, I now I know what happened. This is really obvious to me, as it is to all of us. So what's implied is that Sarab thinks that Bob killed right. his stepmom. And he's shook by this. Like, yeah. he, he looks emotionally... No, he looks like he's going to throw up. Right. Yeah. So he gives the evidence to Drecky, says, do with us what you will. And Drecky starts planning his final interview. And he puts the letter in a lockbox for safekeeping. Yeah. Which I'm like, all right. All right. And that's <laughs> where we end for part five. So in part six, it's worth noting that Bob has a lot of really nervous tics. Um, like, blinking. they're distracting. He does, like, these weird, like, eye twitches. His Like, he blinks very hard. Like, he's almost closing his eyes. And so when Jarecki asks him about the cadaver note, he starts scratching his head, and his eyes dart back and forth between Jarecki and then looking off into the distance. So when he's asking them about, he asked Bob about the cadaver note itself. Now he hasn't brought up the the letter to Susan yet because he gotcha. doesn't have it at this point. Okay. When this part is shown, he only has the cadaver note. So we're going to get to that part. But he has the cadaver note. He asked Bob about it. Bob kind of scratches his head. His eyes dart back and forth and he's not like he's looking away and like he does, you know, if you have the people that analyze people's body language mm -hmm. there's a lot of body language here to analyze um, nervous tics kind of thing yeah, yeah. there's this weird twitch that makes his eyes twitch he does a lot of different things um but he's asked about the cadaver note at this point and you know directly hands him the cadaver note says what do you notice about this and he points out right away that beverly is misspelled the handwriting is in block letters as if somebody is trying to disguise their handwriting or whatever. And it also uses the word cadaver to describe a body. Now, what's worth noting here is that Kathy was a medical student. Mm -hmm. And so this would have been terminology that she would have used quite frequently. A normal person would have put body. Dead body. The, dead person. Yeah. Body. Just yeah. not ca cadaver. Cadaver is very specific to somebody that is used to that kind of terminology. Right. And being married to somebody who was a medical student who would have been doing a lot of work on cadavers at that point right. makes a lot of sense that somebody would use terminology mm -hmm. like this. But it is worth noting that it is kind of an odd word to use. And what can explain that is his connection with Kathy and the fact that she would have used terminology like that and he would have been used to that kind of language. To him, it was normal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So... Now the producers have the two letters, but before they present it to Bob, they have a lot of things to do. So they take those letters and they show Janine Pirro, who immediately, Ooh. she's like, oh yeah, I see those similarities. And she's like, that son of a bitch. Like, yes. she, her face when they first showed it to them, I was like, oh. Yes, yeah, you can me. see it like click with her because she's, she's like, like I'm right. She's like, okay, I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it, and then she looks at the other one. And she's like, oh, like you yeah. can see the light bulb goes off, and she's like, the bees are exactly the same, and she mm -hmm. starts pointing out all these things that are similar. And then in contrast, they also show both the letters to Robert Durst's attorney, and what I assume is that they've shown him the letters after they actually show them to Robert Durst, which is going to come later on. Otherwise, the attorney would have given Bob a heads up, but Don't that did not happen. Gotcha. Yeah. So he shows them to Bob's attorney, 
And he's like, well, I do know that handwriting comparisons are pretty dangerous or whatever. And he immediately tries to like... Deflect, deflect. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, I see a lot of similarities, but I also see a lot of differences and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... At first I was listening to the episode, but as soon as they were showing it to Janine and to the attorney, I had to like rewind and look at them. Their expressions are priceless. No, because Janine's like... Yes. yes and he and the attorney's like no. no yeah you can see like he does like this really long pause where you can see him physically trying to I control say? his facial expressions and trying to walk himself through it because he's like oh no yep so, so it's really interesting to see their faces yeah I maybe love we'll go that. back and screenshot them so if you haven't watched it you can at least see their faces because janine's like i've been waiting my whole career for this moment <laughs> And his attorney is thinking, man, I'm going to need to charge him extra for this. (laughs) (laughs) So Jarecki's team, like I said, they save us all taxpayers the money and they enlist the help of a forensic document examiner. Now, the forensic document examiner says basically like, yes, I see a lot of similarities, but for this to actually be legit, I need a lot more quantities of his writing to determine if these are written by the same person. A lot more samples. Exactly. So they pull 40 samples and these include like rental agreements, DMV forms, all these kind of things that have Bob's handwriting. And these are all things that he provided Derecki with. Mm -hmm. So Derecki didn't have to go get a court order, subpoena, anything. Mm -hmm. Like these are just documents that he had as part of his filmmaking packet. And it was just baffling that he had so many samples, Uh which is good. Yeah, in fact, there's a form that it's like one of those forms that has like the grid style box. Mm -hmm. So you put a letter in each one of the boxes or whatever, which was really significant because that was a form that Bob also filled out in block letters. (laughs) And I mean, like the ends on there, at one point the forensic examiner says it literally could be a printed copy of the other one. They're so similar. Like even the little... Kingston, like the pen dragging weird, are almost exactly the That's same. So funny. So the document examiner goes over all of the information and finds that the characteristics of the letter and Bob's handwriting are a match. So much so, in fact, that he says they're unique to one person and only one person. Mm-hmm. So whoever wrote the cadaver note is also the same person that wrote the letter to Susan, and is also the same person that filled out all of Bob's paperwork. It's all Bob, basically. Yes. And so Jarecki, at this point, faces, like, this huge personal crisis because he started the project thinking that maybe Bob was innocent. Maybe he's not as guilty as he seems. And obviously now that's not the case. Right. He started to like the guy. And the two of them, what I found out through other resources is that they'd kind of built this, like, kinship over their upbringings and their backgrounds. Andrew Jarecki had a very overwhelming father Mm. very similar to Robert Durst and like kind of like the shadow of that and everything. So they kind of had like this kindred spirit type thing where they had just like, they bonded. Exactly. And so like, this was kind of hard for him to stomach. And I think it's part of the reason where we, why we see Andrew let off the gas where he shouldn't have necessarily Mm. in interviews, but don't worry, Bob makes up for that on his own down the road. Yeah. And so the team then tries to get a hold of Bob to finish out the final interview in which they're going to present him both the letters and confront him on it. But Bob starts evading them. So he first says that he's in Madrid and he keeps extending out his return date. And then Sarab contacts them and says basically like he's been in touch with Bob. Bob's in LA 
And he said, don't tell Jarecki. He thinks I'm in Barcelona. <laughs> Which is, again, him being a horrible liar because Terrible. he didn't say he was in Barcelona. He said he was in Madrid. Yep. And if only you could freaking keep track of your lies, my dude, then we wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> he just has no track record. It's hard to keep up with lies. I, I mean, it's yeah, hard. But and like, if you're already mad at it, then don't try it. <laughs> and Jarecki's like, yeah. You know what's hilarious is that he said he was in Madrid, not Barcelona, but okay. And so two months later, he's still refusing to meet up with them. And Draghi at one point is like, listen, if I don't get this final interview, I need to move on to another project. But know that Draghi did not bring up to Bob knowing that he knew the truth or knew that he was yeah. lying because he's not trying to scare him away because no. he wants him to come in and, and one confront of the, him. One of the things that they use is that Bob had accidentally left a backpack with them. Oh. Which they don't mention in the film. He'd accidentally left a backpack with them. And they call him and they're like, we have your backpack. And that's one of the ways that they get Bob to agree to come back into the interview. But not before Bob is arrested. Gotcha. So, Bob is... <laughs> before Bob is arrested, he calls the guys and he's basically like, I'm over this project. You need a new hobby. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> And then next scene cuts to a conference call. And they're like, is so-and-so on the line? Yeah. So-and-so on the line? Yeah, I'm here. What about this guy? Yep, listening. And then one of them holds up a legal notepad and on it, <laughs> on the legal notepad, and the guy's dying laughing and says, Bob has been arrested. <laughs> and the guy on the phone goes, well, our friend Roberto has been arrested in New York. <laughs> and sure enough, Bob has been taken into custody in New York. Yeah. So here's what happened. So remember that Bob... When he was on the run from his Galveston murder trial, he had pulled into Douglas's driveway and he had guns in the car. And then Douglas had hired a bodyguard to protect him and yes. the family. Then after that, they had been shooting all those different scenes at the buildings or whatever, and they had gone to Douglas's house. And Bob had insisted on being filmed in front of Douglas's house. Yes. And Douglas saw all this and was like, hell no. And so he took out an order of protection against Bob. Correct. Which makes sense. A couple weeks after Andrew Drecke and his producers filmed Bob in front of Douglas's house, yeah. Bob came back a couple weeks later on his own and starts ascending the stairs mm -hmm. of the Brickstone, going up to Douglas's house, looks around or whatever, and then saunters back down and walks off. When if it's someone that has threatened your life before and that you've gotten a bodyguard to protect you from, if someone's walking up your stairs, regardless of who it is, brother or sister, whoever, or friend, you're going to be concerned. Yep. What's interesting, though, is like, I'm like, how are we so fearful of this man? Because he literally uses both hands to like pull himself yeah, up the arm rail of the stairs. And he like walks in front of the house just like barely limping along like he's just i mean the man is just decaying right in front of us slowly climbs up the stairs looks around turns around slowly climbs back down it's an intimidation tactic obviously yeah. but i'm just like what exactly is intimidating because if i came out behind you and just tapped you in the back of your kneecaps you would go rolling all the way down those stairs it breaks the <laughs> order of protection <laughs> and so now douglas has enough to actually like have him arrested for violating the order of protection and bail set at $5,000. And as oh, we God. know, this is lunch money to Robert Durst. He's like, <laughs> take it. Deborah, write them a check. Right? <laughs> so obviously he's released in like 24 hours. And so Bob's like, you know what? I could use that backpack back. And so he calls Andrew Jarecki out of the blue. 
part of it is to get this backpack back, but also a huge part of it is that now the lawyers are gonna contact Andrew Jarecki about that filming that took place in front of Douglas's Brickstone. Mm -hmm. And Bob basically calls him and he says, my lawyers are gonna contact you, you know, lawyers doing lawyer things, and they're gonna wanna ask you about the filming that happened outside of those buildings and what happened and blah, blah, blah. So basically it gives Andrew Jarecki the upper hand here because now Bob needs Jarecki on his side and not to out him as being the one that initiates going over to Douglas's house and being the one that wanted to do all these things and everything like that. Basically like Jarecki needs to be the one that takes the fall for this. So it doesn't fall, yeah. look like Bob is using scare tactics or harassment or anything like mm -hmm. that, which is not the case. It is definitely Bob's idea to do all that, but it gives Jarecki the upper hand. Now that Bob needs Andrew Jarecki's help, he agrees to film the final interview. And so when they sit down, they are preparing for this final interview. Everything has been leaning up to this. They're going over how they're gonna present these letters. They have a whole strategy. And so when they sit down to film this final interview, Jarecki lowers Bob's guard by going through old photos of him and like trying to have him identify different things. So they show him sure. a picture of him as a kid playing with his like horse, show him a picture of him and Kathy, where was this taken, you know? Mm -hmm. Just like kind of generic run of the mill photos that he's already identified. Some of them have been given to um, Drecky by Bob. So these are not right. things that he hasn't seen before. So then Jarecki shows him the letter that Bob had written to Susan. And he's like, did you write Susan this letter? And he says, yes, he wrote the Susan letter. So the strategy here is that if he says that he wrote the letter, he cannot deny writing the envelope that the letter came There's in. There's no backpedaling from that. Exactly. So he says, yes, I wrote the letter. He said, do you remember what you wrote the letter for? And he says, no. And Jarecki says, well, my theory is, is that you were sending her money. And Bob was like, that very well could be. That would make a lot of sense that I would put money in there and slip in a check and send it yep. off to her. And so then Jarecki shows him the envelope that the letter came in. Bob immediately notes <laughs> that Beverly is spelled wrong. Yep. So then Jarecki pulls out the cadaver note. And Bob again notes right away, same misspelling on Beverly. He says it. Oh, yeah. It's not Andrew leading him to no. these things. It's Bob saying, Beverly is spelled wrong again. There's that E, like that double, that extra E or whatever. And then Bob says... Handwriting looks similar. The misspelling is the same. So he can see the conclusion that someone would come to that they're basically written by the same person. And Drewicki doesn't even need to ask him. He just like puts all of this together. He knows exactly where this is leading at this point and he's not trying to dodge it. So then Drewicki shows him a side-by-side -side comparison of the address on the cadaver letter and the address on the envelope of the note that he wrote to Susan. And they're, I mean, they're identical side by side. My heart was beating out of my chest when this was happening. Shows in the side by side comparison. Bob says they're very similar. Drecky says, did you write the cadaver note? Bob says, no. He did write the note to Susan, like the letter to Susan, but he did not write the cadaver note. So Drecky hands him the side by side comparison and says, do you know which address you wrote? And Bob says, no. That he cannot pick his own handwriting so, out of the lineup. So damning. And this is where I think that Jarecki should have laid on the gas a little bit harder, but he lets up. Yeah. And he's basically like, I have a hard time. Like, you know, they look exactly the same. Can you, like, can, is there a reason? Right. And, you know, he couldn't Bob's give an not, explanation no, he's not sort. giving him he anything. Couldn't. He couldn't. And then he says, okay, 
you know, we'll call it here. They wrap up the interview and Bob's still wearing his mic. And like I said, Bob's known for two things. It's, one is talking to himself and two is doing it while he's wearing a microphone. So he gets hot mic'd again. And this time he goes into the bathroom and he's still wearing his microphone. So what you're gonna hear here is the actual audio footage from the Jinx. And now that this has been entered into court evidence, we can share it with you guys. This is Bob being hot mic'd while he's in the bathroom. So draw the conclusion that you will. I am going to go use the restroom, which is right here. Or maybe this is the bathroom. Yeah, that's the You're right. This is the bathroom. There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine. rundown again of what he said here so he says there it is you're caught you're right of course but you can't imagine arrest him i don't know what's in the house and i would assume when he's saying i don't know what's in the house of susan's house he's talking about what's in susan's house yep. or like all where's he get basically the question is like where did jerecki get this letter from mm -hmm. or whatever so he i don't know, know what's in the house and then he says oh i want this what a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And then he says, and then the burping. And he says the burping because they, Jarecki edits a lot of this out for the film. But what they later mention, not in this film, but on trial, is that he's burping quite a bit during this interview. Again, mm -hmm. almost like a nervous tick. Oh, it definitely is. And Bob is noting in his monologue here, mm -hmm. he goes, and the burping. Like, that's a giveaway. You're burping that's exactly or whatever. exactly what it is. He's like, I gave him, I'm showing them my giveaway. Like, my mm -hmm. tell sign of I'm lying and my nervous tics, whatever. Yeah. So then, again, I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. And that's how the jinx ends. Now... I will say what I found out is that one of the big arguments is that this these mic clippings or whatever, they're edited. And it's true, mm. they are edited. But one of the big, like, outcries or whatever from Bob's legal defense is that the final two lines of what the hell did I do, killed them all, of course, are flipped. So in the film, Bob says, what the hell did I do, killed them all, of course. But the actual audio footage is... Killed them all, of course. What the hell did I do? Uh-huh. Now, I'm just going to say, I don't think it makes a huge difference. No, it doesn't. No, the content's exactly the same, regardless of how right. you flip it. The way it's, you know, portrayed is, like, that Bob is answering the question of what the hell did I do? I killed them all, of course. But regardless, he's still saying he killed them all. And I almost think it's more damning that he's saying, what the hell did I do? As in, like... Why the hell did I agree to do this interview? Why did I talk to them? That's what I thought he was questioning. Yeah. Not like, why did I kill him? I don't think he has any remorse towards that. I think he's asking himself, what the hell did I do putting myself in this position to talk to Derecki? Right. So that's how the jinx ends. Now, the day before the finale of the jinx aired in March of 2015, Bob is arrested in a New Orleans hotel and he's preparing to go on the run and leave the U.S., 
So Mm. they actually, like, all of this is turned over to police and everything like that. And so the police begin building their case for the murder of Susan based off of this film. Oh, wow. And that hot mic clip. Oh, yeah, that's the... And so they decide before it airs or whatever, they're going to get in front of it and they are going to arrest Bob before he can take off. Now, Bob is staying in this New Orleans hotel and he is registered to stay in this New Orleans hotel under a fake name. He's staying under the name Everett Ward. Everett Ward was the name of a guy who was at the hardware store buying a bow saw the same day that Bob went in and bought the saw to dismember the body of Morris Black. All of Bob's pseudonyms are based on real people. So Dorothy, the woman he was pretending to be when he rented yeah, that apartment, the old lady. is somebody he knew in high school. Oh. Everett Ward, which is the name that he's staying under in New Orleans, is the name of the guy that he met at the hardware store the day he went in and bought all the stuff to dismember Morris Black. Whoa. So all these people are like real people that actually exist. And he's just, you know, using their identities. And so he is charged with the murder of Susan Berman. Now, before Bob goes on trial for the murder of Susan Berman on Christmas Eve of 2019, Bob's mm-hmm. lawyers file a court document acknowledging that Bob did write the cadaver note. Oh, what the fuck? He maintains that he did not kill Susan and he doesn't know who did. But in the court document, he takes ownership of writing the cadaver note. And that's all that's said at that moment about it. Okay, because doesn't on the film, on the jinx, doesn't he say... He denies over and over and over again. But he doesn't he imply, like, whoever delivered this... Killed her. Yeah. Yes, he does. Multiple times. Right. So not only does he do that in the film with Jarecki, whoever sent this letter killed Susan Berman. Yes. He also does it with investigators when he's interviewed in New Orleans about the note. So after he's arrested in New Orleans, prior to his attorneys filing this note, or filing this paperwork or whatever... They ask him again about the letter. He says he doesn't write it. He said, and he says to them, whoever did write it was involved in her death. Murder. In right. her murder, yes. So Bob has been the one on his own who has said on multiple occasions that whoever wrote that note is the one that is responsible for her murder. And now he's saying, by the way, I'm responsible for that note. <laughs> But I didn't kill her, even though I said that whoever is responsible for this note did kill her. I wrote it, but, like, but that doesn't apply to me. Much like nothing applies to Bob. No. So, he did take responsibility for the letter and everything like that. Now, oh, and I have that written next. Remember how Bob said in the interview that only the killer could have written the letter. Okay. Now, fast forward today. Because this obviously is, like, this, he was arrested 2015. And we're still waiting for, like, trials and everything to start when this motion or this acknowledgement of him writing letters filed in 2019. So 2020. Right. The year the world went to hell. (laughs) He was arrested in 2015. At the time, Bob said that he only had five years to live. So we should be coming up on that any day now. But He said that? He said he only had five years to live because he, at this point, now... Today, today, as of today, Bob is 77 years old. Okay. So in 2015, he's still in his 70s. He has esophageal cancer. He had um, hydrocephalus and had to have a stent inserted into his skull or whatever to drain fluid from his brain. Um, And he's got a nice big scar from that. A lot of medical issues. He had to have um, spinal surgery right on his neck, which is why like court photos of him today show him wearing a neck brace Ah, and everything. I was wondering about that. So he's got tons and tons of health issues. 
So he said that, you know, he only had five years to live. Again, that should be any day now. We're past that point. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, he enters a plea of not guilty. It, during his conditional hearings in 2017, and I don't know exactly why the conditional hearings happened. I think it was due and it was related Medical. to his health issues yeah, and everything. Probably. Like, does does it make sense for him to stand trial given his age and his medical condition and everything like that? Like the possibility that he could do harm anymore at this point in the conditional hearings, Bob's best friend testified that Bob had told him that he murdered Susan. What? Yeah. Now I think Bob, I think it was Bob that was the best man in his wedding. One of them was best, best man in the other okay, one's wedding, okay. but I think it was Bob that was the best man in his wedding. And this guy was also friends with Susan Berman. And he said, this gotcha. friend said that basically when Kathy died, uh -huh. Susan presented the logic to Nick, who was the friend, and basically said, Kathy's gone. There's nothing we can do to change the fact that Kathy is gone. Uh -huh. But Bob is still here, so we need to protect Bob. When Susan hmm. died, yeah. Nick applied that same logic and basically said, Susan's gone. There's nothing I can do about Susan being gone. But my friend Bob is still here and I need to protect Bob. Protect him from what? Protect him from basically taking the fall for Susan's murder and not come oh. forward with what he knew. So he tells the story of a time that he went to dinner with Bob and they went to dinner in Harlem and Bob had told him he wanted to talk about Kathy and he wanted to talk about Susan. They make their way through dinner and the conversation never comes up. But at the end of dinner, they're walking outside and Nick says to him, you told me you wanted to talk about Kathy and Susan. And Bob says, I had no choice with Susan. It was either her or me. Whoa. And so I had to do it. Whoa. And Bob starts to walk off and he says, "You, what about Kathy? Yeah. And he says he mumbled something and walked off and he never knew what he wanted to say to him about Kathy. Prior to that, Nick had asked him point blank if he had anything to do with Susan. And he said that he wouldn't admit to it one way or another, which he thought at the time was odd. The case being presented is that Susan helped Bob cover up the disappearance of Kathy. Mm. And so when the case was reopened, he ultimately had to get rid of her because she was the one that was the smoking gun, basically. Now, there have been a couple witnesses so far that have said that Bob admitted that he had killed his wife and also have said that if that Susan had said if anything happened to her, that it was Durst who was responsible, which I, that one I kind of have a hard time buying into because if Susan said, if something happens to me, look at Bob, I don't think Susan would be like, yeah, come visit for Christmas. Like, why give him the opportunity? That just doesn't make sense to me. Hmm. Now, remember in part one when Kathy's friends went dumpster diving and they yeah, were digging yeah. out all this stuff and they found that note in the trash can that said dig, shovel, town dump, blah, blah, blah? Yeah. The defense has also admitted that Bob wrote that too. The fuck? I know. I don't know how that came up or like why Do we're taking ownership of that. you think they're going to shoot for an Alfred's? No. No, no, no. Here's what they're going to do, and I'll tell you what they're going to do because they've already started it. Okay. On July, or I'm sorry, March 4th, 2020, the trial begins. Mm-hmm. So the trial begins on March 4th of 2020. In opening statements, Bob's lawyer says that Durst found Susan's body in her home when he came to visit her for the holidays. He came across her body, did not want to get pinned for her murder, wrote the cadaver note so somebody would discover her, and then ran because that's all Bob knows how to do is run. But he did not kill her. He just found her body. 
So basically what they're Fuck. doing, what they're doing, and it's worth mentioning that, is it Dick DeGaro? Yeah, Dick DeGaro, or he's also leading the defense in this case. Uh-huh. He was also the attorney that basically led the case with the Morris Texas. Blacks murder. Yeah. yeah. And so basically what they're doing is very much the same thing in the Morris Black thing. Is he like, was there. He was there. It's not really his responsibility, and he didn't want to get jammed up for murder, so this is how he solved for it. Okay. It's kind of genius. I am at the point now where if he gets off for this, I'm just giving up. And hiring and putting that lawyer's card in my wallet. All I'm saying is, <laughs> LAPD, this is your chance. Oh, my God. Yeah. So That, yeah. Is, that is a strategy. I, I'm still, like, dumbfounded by it. Obviously, the prosecution is not buying that. Sure. They're presenting the case that Susan knew something, and Bob was very much of the mindset of, it's either her or me, and so now i got to take Susan out, and that he's admitted to all of this and everything like that. They've got a lot of evidence. Yeah. They need to pull bank records. So, oh, I'm sure they will. But it's not a secret that he was sending her money. Everybody knew he was sending her money, and he he said that he sent her money because she was a struggling friend, and he always sent her money. Okay. That part was already... That's probably what the defense would say. Oh, yeah. The jury had heard opening statements and two days' worth of testimony before everything was shut down due to COVID. The defense asked for a mistrial in July because of the shutdown, but they were denied. They were given the option to move forward with just a judge and no jury, but that would be idiotic. So the defense was like, nah, we're good. We'll wait. (laughs) And so they are now in recess until at least April 12th of 2021. So was he extradited to California? Yes. He okay. was extradited from, to California from New Orleans. He was tra- brought up on gun charges in New Orleans because he had guns. Oh. In New Orleans that he wasn't supposed to have. Sure. And so many things happened basically like they expedited the extradition of him to California. Okay. And that was really in large part due to his defense attorneys wanting to get him to California. I would take my chances with LAPD any day over anyone else. They're notoriously like not thorough. Yeah. They got a bit of a history. Yeah, they do. OJ. What's interesting to note, so they're in recess now until April 12th of 2021. Bob is expected to testify again in his defense. <laughs> Can't wait. Oh my God, you're joking. Mm-hmm. Can he even stand up straight at this point? No, he's being wheelchaired into... It's very similar to, like, Golden State Killer, where he came in, like, this feeble old man. Yeah, he's old But I think that um, Golden State Killer was faking it. If you haven't seen the video footage, look it up. I don't think Bob Durst is faking it. Like, he's obviously very sick. Um, So I don't even know that he'll make it to April 2021, but we'll see. Now, here's here's interesting little tidbit that nobody's really dove into, dived into. But I think it's worth mentioning because I have a theory. Before I <laughs> move on. You should put that on the shirt. I have a theory. I have a theory. Because I say that a lot. Yes. <laughs> I do want to say really quick, though, before I move on to my theory. He is being held without bail at this time. Oh, good. Thanks. God. Somebody finally got something, right? He's been in custody since March, or March 14th of 2015. So he's been in jail now, coming on six years. With... Probably medical releases allowed. Yeah, or somebody's coming in or whatever sure. it may be, but they finally learned their lesson that he is a flight risk. He's a flight yeah. risk, yeah. Okay, so my theory. Bob has also been investigated in connection with the disappearance of several young women. 
You're shitting me. And he has never definitively been tied to it. But this happened a long, long time ago. So Lynn Scholes was 18 when she visited Bob's store in 1971 in Vermont. Remember, in the 70s, he wanted that health food store. Mm -hmm. So Lynn visited his store in 1971, and she disappeared later that day. Waiting at a bus stop. Mm Mm-hmm. 16-year-old Karen Mitchell disappeared in Eureka, California in 1997. Bob was in Eureka at the same time, dressed as a woman for whatever reason. And according to credit card transaction, he went to a women's shoe store owned by Karen Mitchell's aunt. He also frequented the homeless shelter that Karen Mitchell volunteered at and was driving a car that matched the description of one that Mitchell was seen approaching and talking to someone. When the witness gave a a sketch artist, like, a description of Mm -hmm. the person that Karen was talking to, that description and sketch matched Robert Durst. Whoa. And she also disappeared. So, here comes my theory. Yeah. I think that these girls disappeared, and he is actually a low-key serial killer. Uh Uh-huh. Whether or not Kathy knew anything, I don't know. But I think because he got comfortable in killing strangers, he also got comfortable in killing the people close to him. And so killing his wife and killing Susan and killing Morris Black were really not that big of a deal because he'd already killed girls before, allegedly. <laughs> Whoa. Mm-hmm. He has the means. He has the means. He has the money. Like, he's in the places where these girls go and disappear. Like... Eureka is in California. Like, he was there, and they know he was there. They also know he was in Vermont. Like He, he definitely has closet yeah. rage from his family, mm-hmm. from his home situation. Yeah. Uh, he has past trauma from his mom mm-hmm. dying. Holy fucking shit. Yeah. Now, you've made it through all that whole thing, and I will just one more thing. One more thing. Trigger warning, because all of you animal lovers out there seem to have a huge issue with the animal thing and not the people thing. All right. So an investigator (laughs) asks him and says, I would venture to say you like dogs more than you like people. And he was like, I would say that's an accurate statement. Now, the reason this gets brought up is because the one thing that Robert Durst is unhappy with Andrew about in filming... All Good Things, uh-huh. which is the story of Robert Durst and paints Robert Durst as a triple murder that yeah. he murdered his wife, he murdered his friend, and he murdered his neighbor or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason he reaches out to Andrew Jarecki to do the jinx is because he's like, I thought that this was really accurate. You'd obviously done your research. You had done all this and that. And I thought that you did a really good portrayal and blah, 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 which I'm like, um, he painted you as a murderer. So are you saying that's accurate? But the one issue that Bob takes up with Andrew Jarecki and confronts him about is that Andrew Jarecki implies that Bob killed his dog. What dog? He has Alaskan Malamutes. Okay. And what we find out is that Bob has a series of Alaskan Malamutes, and they're all named Igor. The fuck? And at one point, Douglas had told the New York Times that Bob owned all these dogs and named them all Igor, and they all died under mysterious circumstances. (gasps) And Douglas says to the New York Times, in retrospect, I now believe he was practicing killing and disposing of his (gasps) wife with those dogs. What? 
And so what Bob says to Andrew Jarecki is, I have an issue with the fact that you made it look like I would kill my dog. I would never kill my dog. The rest, I thought it was fantastic. You did a great job. You obviously <laughs> had done the research. Don't have any qualms with that. But you implied that I killed my dog and I have a big problem with that. And what? Douglas, Douglas, his own brother, very much believes that he did. So is this when he was younger? No, this was as an adult. He got these dogs and had them around the same time he was married because what Douglas is saying is, I believe he was using those dogs to practice getting rid of Kathy. And he had several of them. Douglas estimated he had seven of them. Bob said he only had three, but they all died under mysterious circumstances. And he kept calling them all Igor. And he called them all by the same name. And and his issue with Jarecki, well, he's one got hit by a car, one ate an apple core, which apple cores are poisonous to dogs. Um, And I don't remember what the other one was. You know what it is? Well, isn't it the arsenic in the seeds? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or cyanide. 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 That was his big issue was the dog thing. Not not killing my wife, killing my friend, killing my neighbor, but the dog is where I draw the line. But he didn't explain it either. He... He explained it in the fact that he said, like, I didn't kill my dog. Sure. My dogs have died as results of accidents. And you shouldn't have implied that I would kill my dog because I never would. I love my dogs. Damn. Drecky was like, all right, if that's the issue that you want to take up. But Douglas is like, he did kill his dogs and he was using them to practice getting rid of bigger, bigger uh, bodies one day. Douglas? I was like, okay, Douglas. Finally gave an interview and it was worth it. And a theory. Yeah. Um, now obviously we're in recess for the current murder trial. So like if, and when that time comes, I really, honestly, I don't know that Bob's going to make it, but if he does, um, we will do a follow-up at that point. But it is worth mentioning that Bob is still married to Deborah. She does manage his money and still maintains her power of attorney. And to this day, he is still estimated to be worth a hundred million dollars. Here's my question on all this. Like, the prosecution's going to have a hell of a time with a defendant that's admitting being in the house. So that puts him in the house with Susan. That not throws out the window, but starts wedging that possibility of doubt mm-hmm. of, like, fingerprints if, you know, if they found a hair or whatever. Like, which also, didn't we, or you talked about how they weren't too thorough with Susan's death investigation because it looked like a mob hit Mm -hmm. and they kind of put it off to that. So as far as preserving any evidence, there's probably a big lack of it. True. But I think will be the smoking gun. It is going to be theoretical, but I think what will be hopefully the smoking gun is first Bob admitting to his best friend that he did it. Mm. Him saying what he said on the jinx. Yes. And him saying that the person who wrote the letter is the person that killed Susan Berman. Those were his words. And I think that between those three, as well as him being fearful of the case being opened back up with Kathy and him lying about it up until this point, I think... Yeah. But I agree. I agree. What the defense is going to do is they're going to say... You can't, you can't prove that he pulled the trigger, right? The proof there is that he was in the house, but you can't prove that he's the one that killed her. 
It's the same thing with that they did with Morse Black, where they're yeah. saying you can't prove that it wasn't self-defense. And right. so the burden really does rest on the prosecution at this point. But I swear to God, if he gets off on this one. Because, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but do they have the weapon? And, I mean, I'm sure they didn't take measurements as far as the trajectory or how, you know, what height someone had to be for the bullet Probably to come not. from where. Because he's a shorter guy. Yeah. So those would be things that at least would look, would make him look culpable. Right. But if they didn't gather that information at the scene because they were writing it off as a mob hit, then yep. it's going to be, it's going to fall on the prosecution to try and, because the defense is like, our cards are out there. Prove me wrong. Right. Whoa, that's crazy, man. So we'll see. But moral of the story is that if you need a bang up defense lawyer, Jesus Dick Daguerre is the guy to call. For real. And that guy's like in his 80s. And he's doing a hell of a job because, excuse me, if, you're, if you've gotten a person off for murder once and you might possibly twice. get him off twice. That's worth that one million retainer God, fee or whatever. Damn, yeah, seriously. Okay. Well, that, although I know we don't usually cover stuff that's in court and stuff, but yeah, there's we, a lot that's happened. We really and, like to have a... Uh, nice. an ending for yeah. you guys but we don't right now and I don't know the, based on Bob's health that we ever really will have an right. ending so make your conclusions as with what the information that I you know have. what I think yeah I think we're on the same page on this yeah. one as Fatina said guilty people don't run yeah I also don't think that people chop up bodies after self defense and things like that no um, but yeah so we know he's not all there but but is he? But he there's might part be. of me that thinks that he might be. He might be. Serial killers are notoriously. He's just a psychopath. Yeah, with money. Yeah, and he seems very weird and just like a bizarre old man that's just like losing his marbles a little bit. But I think he's just playing like he's either playing a part or that's just like a side effect of. How smart he really is. Right. I don't really know. I don't know if he's diabolical or he not. He pauses but... for thought just to make sure he's saying what he thinks is the right thing. Right. Because ve- he can't talk out loud to himself all the time. Right. Thank you for that. That You're was welcome. really good. Um, I hope everyone got a chance to go see it. It's still on there. Yeah. Um, go take a peek at it. All right. So today's What the Florida came from a list that a listener sent to us from Victoria. So thank you for taking the time to send those to us. There was a lot to choose from, but the one that I'm reading to you today, uh, the headline reads, Tampa man hospitalized after setting himself on fire while allegedly trying to burn down home. Oh my God. (laughs) That's truly unfortunate. Um, This... Man is 51 years old. He was hospitalized with serious injuries after burning himself while trying to set the home on fire. He was arrested by Tampa Police Department. He threw a bucket full of accelerant into the home, but it ignited, exploded, and set him on fire. (laughs) Yeah. So after he caught fire, not sure if he got, if he stopped, dropped, and rolled or what, but he got into his vehicle and drove away. So the canine units had to sniff him down. And oh. that's in a description was put out, including his injuries. So can you imagine like looking for a man that's half burnt, probably cinched off hair? Yeah. 
<laughs> my canine follow the smell of burnt oh. hair. Ouch. So, yeah, don't uh, don't throw a bucket of accelerant at anything and try to flat it on fire. So what I think a lot of people don't know, and this is what happened to a guy that my mom went to high school with, is that it's not the accelerant that is flammable. It's the, the fumes. fumes. And there's a kid that came into her high school when they were in high school who had decided he was going to play a prank on the principal. He was a problematic kid. He's going to play a prank on the principal and he doused himself in gasoline and came into the school and was taunting the principal like he was going to like light a lighter and light himself on fire. This was a prank? Yeah, like I said, it was a problematic kid. It wasn't supposed to be a funny prank. It was supposed to be, yeah. No. And the principal like smelled the smell of gasoline, which is why he came out into the hallway or whatever. And it was the kid sitting there and basically taunting him with this lighter like he was going to light himself on fire. And he lit the lighter (gasps) and thought that he'd have to touch it to himself for him to light on fire, that it was the gasoline itself that was flammable, but it's actually the fumes. And so when he lit the lighter, it caught fire with the fumes and the kid lit himself on fire. Holy shit. And my mom's brother was in class at the time and watched the whole thing happen through a window. Whoa. Mm-hmm. It was, and they said the kid just, I mean, the scarring and everything like that, he survived oh, it. He died later on from complications <gasps> from it or whatever. Wow. Oh. Okay, don't play with gasoline. Yeah. Moral of that story. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just scrolling through her Instagram and we were talking about Hunter Killer and Hunter Killer reposted us the other day, which I was like, mm, thanks. Um, they posted, what was it? They posted a thing that was like, it says, it's always a bad sign when the husband blanks. Oh, okay, okay. It's always a ha- bad sign when the husband blanks. And I filled it out and I said, it's always a bad sign when the husband has a girlfriend. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they reposted it. Thank you, Hunter Killer. Um, they also, I was just scrolling through Instagram as we were reading the What the Florida. And they posted a really interesting tip, which I think is worth noting. Um, a single women tip. Keep a pair of worn men's boots by your front door. And I didn't even think of this. Big Mad True Crime Podcast submitted that. And they said that they covered a case where a man would check women's homes to see if they lived alone or not. And if no men were found there, he would break in, assault them, and kill them. And she said, I know we shouldn't have to take these precautions, but it is the world that we live in, blah, blah, blah. So get a pair of man's boots. Goodwill's a great place to find them cheap. And warn it. Yeah. And, like, put them out on your front door or by the front door or something like that so somebody would see them. And I thought that was a really interesting tip. That's genius. Yeah. Absolutely. Go muddy them up a bit and put them on the front door. Yeah. So thanks, Hunter Killer. We always appreciate you guys. Okay. All well, right. Next time we'll be talking about Scott Peterson. Yes. <laughs> I'm, like, legitimately nervous. I'm nervous, too, because I, I don't want to do as bad a job as the actual prosecution did. I mean, you couldn't say that the prosecution did a really bad job. They got their conviction. The people... Okay, never mind. We're, we're we'll going to get into it. it yeah. but Don't come for Fatina yet. Like, everybody's coming for me, though. She's not saying that he's innocent. Neither am I, but no. all of you guys think I am, so it's fine. <laughs> you hear that, Kim? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but please let me go on vacation. <laughs> all right, see you guys next time. Socials? Oh, shit. Sorry. Okay. Um, go. I'm ready to eat. You can send us your what the Florida, send us your stories, send us your catfish stories, send us your murder stories, hometowns, whatever it may be. You can do that a number of ways. Number one, you can email us 
astrangerdangerpodcast at gmail.com. You can go over to our Instagram, follow us, send us a DM, whatever you prefer, at astrangerdangerpodcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Stranger Danger colon a true crime podcast. Follow the Facebook group, Stranger Danger colon murder lovers. And you can follow us on Twitter using at SD true crime pod. Thank you. Great. Like and review us on Apple iTunes, whatever it may be. Thank you so much. I love you. Don't Bye. play with gasoline. Bye. <laughs>